Hi, welcome to another edition of Ampere Amplified. My name is Mahesh Madhav, and I'm a performance engineer at Ampere Computing, and I'm joined today with Matt Erler. He is a principal engineer and an SOC architect. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Good to be here. So it's really cool that you joined us here today. And so I want to chat with you a little bit about the work that you do at Ampere and the initiatives that you've taken. I want to first start off by asking you, can you share with us how you found your role and your responsibilities here at Ampere? And then tell us what you're up to these days. Yeah, I, you know, being a small company with maybe so few people who were doing architecture, I think was a real challenge because I was trying to figure out what of the vast number of areas could I contribute in. But there was also, you know, there, there were the things that I knew uh, were needed, but there were also things that I just really had no idea whether or not that, I didn't even know that that was a problem before. And, and then, there were, then there were the technical hurdles of even if I knew that something was needed, I didn't have the technical knowledge to actually go do it. You know, there were a lot of different problems of both what area do I want to focus in? What is most useful for the company? What do I feel most qualified to do? Uh, and what are things that I've always been interested in or passionate about? So one of the things that I've always liked, even you know, long before I joined the industry back when I was in college, was just competitive analysis. I loved reading articles on all, you know, all the different websites. For me, the time that I was reading articles was in the days of the Pentium 4 coming out, or Pentium 3 and Pentium 4 competing with the Athlon and the race to one gigahertz. And I, I just remember, you know, in college, loving reading about that and trying to understand the differences in the microarchitectures between, you know, the AMD and Intel parts. And so when I came here, I noticed no one was was really seriously doing competitive analysis for the area of architecture that I work in, which is you know coherency and caching. And, and so I just wanted to see how how do Intel and AMD compare? What uh, you know Ampere at that time you know had our first generation part that hadn't been released, but you know we had you know we had silicon that we were playing around with. So I, how did you know how did Ampere compare with Intel and AMD or some of the other players in the market? So we got platforms, we started playing with them, I started benchmarking them, just stuff that I had never done before, but I was always interested in from you know the early days of my interest in computer architecture. So it was more uh, it was more not that not that it was a technical challenge. But it was more just something that I had always been interested in doing. And for me, it was kind of a hobby project. And then I started finding out that the data I'd collected started to go in slide presentations to the upper management. And I, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't trying to prevent that, but I certainly hadn't expected that the stuff I was doing would be so immediately visible throughout the company. But it, it was. And uh, that kind of empowered me to you know, to, to make it you know, go the next level, try to get a little bit more. Uh, but I also recognized this is not what I'm. You know, it's not what I'm here to do. This was a fun exercise, and I still do it a little bit. You know, on the side, but I have a real, uh, you know, real technical challenges that I'm trying to solve. That uh, you know, no one else in the company is. It's not really their job to do it. So uh, for me. It was a balance of trying to figure out what are the problems that I know how to do or fun or interesting and maybe useful, 
but also recognizing long-term, where should I be investing you know, my technical growth so that I'm the most useful to the company that I can be. So as a SOC architect, I know that SOC architects are kind of like, they take Legos, take Legos and put them together, both as a way to, to build CPU, as well as building the actual Legos that are pieced together. I know you're, you're responsible for a lot of the components and you're responsible for a lot of the ways that the components are pieced together. So can you share a little bit about what you do? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, so SOC architecture is, is kind of a, a broad term and there, there, there are a handful of us at Ampere who, who work in that. Uh, I, uh, me specifically, I focus on a, a more narrow, you know, more narrow area of SOC architecture, specifically like coherency, which is the way that multiple people talk together, or I should say multiple uh, cores all talk together. And I, and I also work on our, our interconnects for connecting multiple processors together or multiple chiplets together. So one of the things that as an SOC architect we do is we license IPs from companies in some cases. If, you know, we at Ampere want to build the best part that we can, but uh, we also don't want to invest in you know, the, the resources required to build everything from scratch. That's not always the best way to, to use our resources. So we license IP where we think that's the right thing to do. And we build stuff ourselves where we think that's the right thing to do. And then we build things that put it all together. Even if, even if we don't necessarily want to do that, there are lots of times when pieces don't fit together perfectly. And so the job of an SOC architect is to figure out where's the right place to build your own custom part, where's the right place to license something, and how do you fit them all together. So, you know, my role is typically talking to vendors, understanding their capabilities, thinking about what, you know, what individual pieces we might want to license, evaluating where we are, what we're building, in, in terms of competitive competitive analysis, looking at the features that we need for our products and determining how's the best way to get those features. How's the best way to give our customers the capabilities that they're looking for in our future generation products? You know? so, so there's IPs or the building blocks, the Lego blocks that we license. And then there's other ones that we create ourselves. And then there's also IP that glues all of those blocks together. Yeah, And you span a broad range of all these. And I know one of your fortes is gluing things together. Yeah, we um, in the ARM ecosystem, ARM has created a set of specifications that allows different IPs to plug together. But that doesn't necessarily mean that every IP has the full suite of capabilities. And, and it also doesn't mean that two IPs, even if they're functionally able to talk to each other, they might not do it very well. They might not be very fast in their communication. So one of the things that I've worked on is kind of bridging those gaps. How do we make it so that our IPs talk together more quickly or more efficiently? It's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because what you have to do in that environment is really understand the meat of the spec, like what's required. And then under, you know, what was the intention in terms of how do you make this, you know, how do you build a system around this spec? And then you have to really understand, you know, if you're putting two different building blocks together that you didn't build yourself, but somebody else built, 
how do you, you know, how do you analyze those two things and make sure that they work together really well? You know, on, on a future product that we're working on, you know, one of the things we've recognized is that these uh, two IPs, they don't work together really well. I mean, they, they were designed by two different companies and they, they work in isolation. But when you think about the requirements of the system, you'll notice, oh, we don't have, you know, we don't have the capabilities of sending enough, uh, you know, enough messages or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it takes too long to send a message or something like that. So, uh, what we do as a, as, as an architect, performance architecture as well, is we try to understand what those limitations are. And then when there is a big problem, we say, how do we solve it? What little piece can we put in the middle that solves it? Or maybe what do we, what conversation do we have with an IP vendor to tell them that we need them to make a change? And so that's kind of the process is looking at all of it together and figuring out the best way to solve a, a, a problem when we have them. Very cool. So it seems like there are some particular interfaces where we definitely want to attack and enhance in a way, since there are maybe deficiencies in the way that they've coming off the shelf, they may not work. You've kind of identified a few where there's opportunity. Can you speak a little bit more in detail on the kind of work that you do to identify and solve that problem? Yeah. So one of the biggest, one of the biggest things that I've taken ownership of at our company is latency. So latency is how long does it take for a specific, like a single request or a single transaction to complete? So you might think of it as reading from memory. You know, a software is executing, it generates a read to a specific address in memory. And how long does it take for that to come back? So we, we attack this in a lot of different ways at different stages of product development. The first thing that we do is, you know, when we're defining a new product, we look at what, what, what happened in the last generation? What IPs are we sharing with the last generation or, or are largely sharing with the last generation? And then we say, okay, so we are making a request from a core, for example, that's going to memory. So we have a pretty good idea of what the pipeline is of, through the core. And then we kind of follow the, that request as it goes through all of the different IPs that we license or IPs that we build on its way to memory. And then we follow the path as it goes back, as it returns to the core. And we can use some of the historical behaviors that we've seen on earlier products to get a good sense of where are we? You know, let's say we are adopting a new DDR technology. Well, we'll talk to the IP vendor if we're using one for, you know, for that controller to say, what is your latency through your controller and how did it change from this generation to the next generation or, or other IPs that are along the way. So this allows us to get an early sense of where do we think we are relative to our previous generation? Are we, are we faster? Are we slower? And then once we get there, we, you know, we'll define a target. We'll talk to customers and we'll say, do you need this to be better? Or would you like us to focus on other areas? Mm-hmm. And then once we kind of have a general idea, we can say, is this a problem? Do we need to address this? And then that may cause us to, to develop a new IP that targets a specific area where we think that there's a reason for improvement. You know, once we kind of get these very high level ideas, 
what we then do is kind of like a, we, we work really closely with the developers of the IPs or the internal teams to understand every single step of the process, every single thing that's happening as, as a request goes to memory and then returns and data returns to the core. And we uh, try to map out every single thing so that we can make a accurate projection one or two years in advance of a product being sold, what that's going to be. And we use that to talk to customers. Once we've done that, and people start actually developing IPs or integrating it together, we can use simulation or emulation to get cycle accurate numbers that we hope reflect what we estimated. But of course, no, nothing behaves the way that you expect it yep. to when you're building it. Yep. And then after all that's done, we get actual silicon eventually, and then we measure the silicon. We see where did we meet what we expected? Where are we shy? What are the reasons for it? There are a lot of things that can happen in a chip. There are configurations that are different. In, in, and it could be that something's not broken. It was just configured wrong. So you spend a lot of time when you have actual silicon trying to get the silicon to behave the way you expect it to. So th that was great. What you actually did was you walked us through the entire product lifecycle in a way from the inception all the way through implementation, debug, and to the customer and back and feedback for the next generation. And I know uh, that is part and parcel of what we do as architects. And part of the glue that we have to make sure that we can ferry this idea from conception all the way to, to productization is documentation, right? Mm -hmm. And you know that's one thing that uh, as an architect, as architects, we have to make sure that our specifications are solid, the documentation is there as a way to communicate effectively with all the other teams. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of being able to communicate effectively with the people in our partner organizations at Ampere, as well as our, our customers? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that there are a lot of reasons why documentation is so key to what we're doing. One is it's certainly, you know, in this, t in this day, uh, you know, during the pandemic for the last year, we haven't been able to see people face to face. And so there's just a, an extra barrier to communication that makes it harder to explain this idea that you had for this improvement that you're doing. And so just naturally having documentation, maybe particularly over the last year, but just in general, documentation allows you to express ideas to people who you might not be able to talk to regularly or who might, you know, takes a while to, to really process and understand something. And so documentation is this way that, yeah, yeah, you may have a conversation with somebody about it, but they're doing a thousand other things and they may have understood, but, you know, when they come back a week later to work on it, they, you know, they really may not want to engage you in another conversation. And so documentation is this way to kind of broaden the reach of that conversation that you had. Make it so that in the future, people don't have to seek out the individual mm -hmm. who has that specific knowledge, but they can go reflect back on documentation. And when we're working on a specific product, you know, there may be one architect and there may be two designers or whatever who are actually building it. And then there may be two DV folks who are making sure that it behaves the way you expect. But that is not the end of what you build. And matter of fact, that's, you know, there are a whole host of people outside who may need to understand what's going on in this specific thing that you're building. Certainly there are people who are developing software, mm. 
both uh, software that's running on the chips as well as firmware for programming the capabilities. And documentation is, is a way that you can broaden the, you know, is, is a way that you can make it so that people who might not be able to engage with the product when you're building it can get the understanding of what you've built after you've built it so that they can work and, and, and they can develop it. Yeah, you know, I've seen many years after a product has been built, someone who I had not interacted with during that product comes and seeks that documentation and and gives us feedback on it and then thanks us for having this because they're so far downstream from where we are. It could be many years down downstream. And they are thankful for having clear and precise specifications that allow them to build software for, for our part. So I, I definitely know the, the benefit there. I, I know that documentation is often thought of as, let's write down what it is. Let's explain what it is. And that is definitely a part of documentation, and that, that's necessary. But I, I also think of it as more, more than that. It's motivation, too, right? <laughs> yeah. You're, you, you want to explain what it is, but you also want to explain why mm-hmm. you did it. So, or the choices that you made that got you to this part. Because documentation is helpful for explaining, but it's also helpful for teaching. And teaching as in explaining the decisions that you made and why you did them. Or explaining the process that happened behind the scenes to achieve the eventual solution that you got to. Because one of the things that I've observed is you work on a product and you build the best thing that you can in the time frame and with the resources that you have. But there's always something better that you could have done. There are always optimizations you could have made if you had the time or if you had the resources or maybe if you just had the chance, you know, you you thought about it a little bit earlier. And so one of the things documentation can do is it can be a living document. It Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be this static thing of this is what we built and it's done. It can be a we realized later on that this is this is a weak spot, not so weak that we had to address it, but in the future generation, let's focus in this area. We know that there's there's some cheese down this path. Yep. There's something that we can do to make it better. But also for maybe for a junior engineer who might not have been involved in the early discussions, you can use documentation as a way of describing to them the decision-making process. Yep. Why did we decide to make this structure this size? Why did we decide to put it here instead of here? What were the trade-offs of that decision? And I think the way that you document that, just documenting it and explaining it, can can make this more than just descriptive. It can make it something that people can use to learn. Absolutely. And hopefully make better engineers. Yep. Yep. And as Ampere is built upon this culture of learning and growth, Renee has created this foundation for us. It's up to us to, to ferry that along for the next generation as well. And and explain to them the motivation and, and the reasons why decisions are made about CPU architecture. Yeah. So that's really great. I want to go a little bit deeper on this topic of documentation since you initiated something that really blew me away and I want to, sh- to bring that out. I thought it was really amazing when you came to our staff meeting with a proposal about sharing what's happening in the industry about inclusive technical documentation and inclusive technical terminology. Can you share a little bit about that? And I will then continue to praise accolades upon you. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Oh, that's great. Look forward to it. Um, yeah, the 
so one of the things that's been happening in the industry that, that I've observed is just a, a trend towards being sensitive about the language that we use and, 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 and how we talk. It's very easy in, it's very easy to just kind of focus on your own personal experience or the things that you've learned with, whether you were in school or through the industry earlier in your career. It's very easy to focus on that language and, and kind of get stuck to that language. But I think one of the things that I've, I've learned is that language can be a barrier. We need to make sure that as we want to attract new talent or people who have had different experiences growing up, that we think about the language that we use when we're, when we're writing documentation, when, when we describe things. The point of documentation really is to communicate an idea to somebody. And if we, if we kind of, if we get hung up on terminology that maybe we used when we were younger or terminology that, terminology that we, that we learned, you know, from school or from previous work experience, that can be a barrier to people who didn't, who right. didn't have that environment. So I think there's a, a recognition that, you know, in a fast moving environment, you want to make sure that you're using language that communicates to everybody equally well. But, but I think there's more to that as well, which is kind of a, a sensitivity to, yep. a, a sensitivity to, to how words the meaning of words and the way that we've used words have changed. Right. Historic context yeah. and new context. Right? Exactly. So when we've been working on products, we often use these industry standard specs. And these industry standard specs use terminology that is, antiquated. frankly, it's yeah. antiquated. It, it had very clear meaning when it was written, but sometimes people could think of that terminology as maybe not descriptive in some cases, but also maybe offensive in yeah. other cases. So I think one of the things that I noticed when I was starting to write documentation and with some conversations that I had with peers of mine was that as we are writing documentation, as we are the ones who generate kind of the ideas that get written down in, in documentation, we have a responsibility to think how do we write this down? How do we describe things? We're, we're describing functionality for the first time. So we get to choose what words we want to use to describe it. And so in the industry, there have been, you know, there have been a bunch of different companies that have chosen to remove certain terminologies from their code bases or for the, from their documentation. And so I, I thought at Ampere, it would be good for us to have that conversation as well. Absolutely. So in our staff meeting, you know, I brought in, you know, I just brought in a description, wasn't trying to tell anybody, this is the words that you need to use to describe this specific function or, or anything, but I wanted to bring in the conversation. And the conversation really is just about, let's think about how we use words and how that may help or hurt somebody else engage in the conversation. Specifically, there's terminology in computer architecture. You may want to have the ability to describe something as allowed or not allowed. Mm -hmm. Well, the way that that may have been done in the past would be a whitelist and a blacklist. But that's not necessarily the best way to describe it. Some people might reasonably think that that would... Uh, you know, that's really trying to be exclusive. Right. And it perpetuates an inherent bias that 
might exist in that person's you know, exactly. vocabulary. And we have a chance to change it. Exactly. And there are so many better ways to describe it. There's allow list and deny list, which is very specifically what you're trying to yeah. describe. So that's just an option for us to change our terminology in a way that might not be offensive to someone who actually has experiences with being with being denied right. something due to the color of their skin. Right. We shouldn't be using that terminology there. Another example is master-slave terminology. Yeah, it's laden throughout the documentation, legacy documentation all throughout computer there, science. There's almost, yeah, there's almost no area of computer architecture that I've been in earlier in my, you know, earlier in my career that didn't have some reference to master-slave. And so if you look through terminology and documentation, you'll see that everywhere. But of course, master-slave is not a simple terminology in the real world. It does not mean what we use it to mean in computer architecture. And we should not be using it that way because for so many people, it means something completely different. And it using that terminology ends up being a barrier to those people to contribute to the conversation. It makes it so that people who have ideas and want to share might not feel like their ideas are welcome in that environment. And I think that's really dangerous. Right. Someone who I work with is is working on a project where this terminology is used for for hooking up pieces of his model. And he told me that every time he has to type out these commands, he struggles a little bit. Right. And he's not able to be, you know, streamlined and productive because he has he has a hiccup every time he types in master and slave. Mm -hmm. And I think the time has come for us to kind of move beyond this and the fact that we're at least trying inside the company to do this it speaks volumes of where we're coming from. And we're encouraging our vendors and suppliers to also do that. Yeah. So that's, that's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, I, I don't think of what we're doing as, as, as groundbreaking. There are a lot of people in the industry who have noticed this and have taken action on it. And, and so I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't claim that you know, the work that we're doing is somehow indicates that we're so sensitive or, or so yeah. amazing. It, I, I don't want to toot right our own to horn. Do. This is, we're trying, you know, we recognize that there's a problem in the industry and we want to play our part. We are the ones who are writing the spec. So the language that we generate in the, you know, in our specs gets used. So that's our part to play. Yep. That's something that we can do. We can try to be sensitive to, how the words we use impact other people. I was really excited when you, you brought this to the attention of our team inside of Ampere. And speaking personally, as a person of color, I was thinking about you being a Caucasian male, so high-minded enough to push this as an ally, right? So I'm thinking of you as an ally in that regard. And that's, I'm proud to be your teammate. So thank you for this. I, well, I... I appreciate it. I, I, uh, I, I think we all have a responsibility to be, to be thoughtful, right? I mean, we're obviously we're all citizens of the world. So I do think, yes, Ampere has the value of inclusive workforce or inclusive workplace. And obviously Ampere is the value. And so you could say, oh, well, because they have the value, that's why we do this. But it's not. It's because 
we're people, we're humans yeah. and we love each other. And I think that that's, I think that's really the driving force behind it. And it, it's not about, it's not about like, oh, let's force everybody to do this. It's about, let's have a conversation. Let's be open about this and let's understand other people's perspectives and why this might be hurtful and what maybe what's a better way to communicate with something else that we can do. I think it also dovetails into this idea of like workplace inclusivity and workplace safety. And I know you, you in particular had, uh, you participated in our internship program last summer and we had three interns and we provided them a safe environment to, to learn and have their voices heard. And the great thing is that all three of those interns are coming back this summer for either full-time employment or more internships. And part of that is the way that we behave not only as technical employees, but as human beings. And can you, can you share some of your thoughts on how you create this space for people to innovate regardless of color and gender? Yeah, I, I think, um, one of the, one of the things that I do is I try to be open about my failings. I, there are so many things that I don't know or I don't understand. And I think that I, I like to be clear about that, explain the things I don't know or explain the mistakes that I've made so that it makes it so that other people understand that you don't, you don't need to know everything. You don't need to be perfect in your education or perfect in your articulation to be able to be contributing, to be able to, to be able to, to be able to help and actually build a product. And so when I'm working with either junior engineers or interns, I think one of the things that for me is really important is explaining that we make mistakes mm-hmm. and we learn from them and you don't need to come here with everything. You don't need to come here understanding everything. Part of the job is learning. And so creating an environment that is accepting of where people are and also gives them the freedom to experiment and gives them the freedom to not have the answer yep. and to work on the answer. And 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 I, I think that that's helpful because everybody's kind of got different disciplines that they focused on or different backgrounds. And that doesn't just because they don't know about coherence, which is the thing, one of the things I work on, you know, doesn't mean that they don't, that they couldn't understand it and they couldn't contribute. And it doesn't mean that they don't have ideas from their background that could apply to the ideas that I'm working on. I I guess, you know, there's kind of this technical haze around the work, you know, every job that we do has kind of got this technical jargon and this, this, this way that makes it hard to penetrate, makes it hard for other people to, to, to get involved and to understand. And I think that that doesn't help. Yeah. You want to make an environment where people can either ask a question when they don't understand and not knowing the jargon is not the same as not being able to contribute. So, you know, one of the things that I, I always wanted to do is make, you know, when I was talking to the junior engineers that I worked with was make sure that they feel comfortable expressing what they don't know and that they feel comfortable bringing in the ideas that they do have or bringing in the experiences that they do have. 
And, and I think that that's, that kind of goes into this idea of, you know, using inclusive terminology is it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's it more about creating a space where people feel like they can share their ideas. Mm-hmm. Someone might be fully trained in all the technical terminology because it's not an inclusive workplace or an inclusive work environment. They don't feel like they can share. It's not because they don't know the terminology, right. but it's because they don't feel as though what they have to say is valued. And I think that that's certainly there's, if we look at the two things, there's, there's the jargon side of technical terminology that people don't understand and having an inclusive workplace or having a, a place where you are open to people where to meet them where they are allows those people to contribute, uh, and, and share their ideas. But having an inclusive workplace also allows people who do have technical knowledge, do have things to bring and could contribute immediately. It makes them feel as though their voice is valued and makes them feel as though they can contribute in a way that will have an impact on what gets created because others listen. The great thing is that we as, as Ampere, we hold this value of humility very highly. We know that as Ampere employees, we are all subject to failure now and then, uh, but we recognize that and try to learn from it. And I think we are looking for that in the folks that we bring in and we give them an opportunity to have their voices heard. And on the other side, we allow our employees have to listen and make sure to have those voices be heard. And I think that's what inclusivity really means is that we actually have the ability to share diverse voices at the same level. Yeah, I I, I mentioned previously that, you know, as as a, as a human, I think we have a responsibility to listen to what other people have to say. And, and I think that is its own motivation. But as well as a company, we want to attract the best people, the smartest people. And that means creating an environment. That means creating an environment where people who are the best and smartest feel like they can share. Yeah feel like they can participate because they're going to go somewhere else if they don't feel like they can share. So it, it hurts the company if we don't create that kind of workspace. Yep. So one last question for you, Matt. Around this time, a lot of people are graduating. My niece is graduating. She's going to get a college degree. And there's so many places where she could work. How? What, what would you say to a new college grad? Why should they choose Ampere? So one of the things that I think Ampere offers that is pretty rare is an ability to contribute immediately at any level. When, uh, when I was looking, when I got out of college and I was looking for where to go, one of the things I observed was that big companies always kind of put you in junior roles. They don't expect a lot from you because there's a lot to learn in the industry. And, and, and that's true. Just getting familiar with the job and, and, and what you need to do is a lot of work. Um, but, and then small companies were simply uninterested in hiring junior people because it's difficult to train and get people up to speed and get them contributing. So I, I just found it, that was something that was not really an option when you were coming out of school. What Ampere does, which I think is fantastic, is 
we do hire people who are coming straight out of school and we put them immediately in positions with responsibility. We give them a lot of, we give them a lot of support. There are some excellent technical senior leaders at this company and excellent senior leaders who are not technical or who are technical in disciplines that aren't yours, but can treat, can teach you and other things like behavioral stuff. Ampere has a wealth of, of experience and knowledge in that area, but we also have just a need for people to work on new and interesting things. And so what Ampere offers people is an ability to immediately get engaged in something, to immediately work on something, and then to have their work contribute. So we don't, we don't have tiers and tiers of engineers working on a specific thing. We give responsibility to individuals to complete their task, and we expect them to deliver. There are a lot of places that I'm sure have this, but it's something that at Ampere I've recognized is our ability as a company to empower people who are just starting out, to give them projects that are challenging and have an impact. And that's something that I would, if I were leaving, uh, if I were graduating from college, that's something that I would look for. And it's something that I have noticed Ampere has actually made a lot of work to try to build. Yep. Yeah, we're trying to build that castle. Yeah. So great. Thanks for that explanation, Matt. That was really enlightening for new college grads. And we've reached the end of our time here today. So I want to thank Matt Erler. He is a principal engineer here at Ampere Computing. My name is Mahesh Madhav, performance engineer, and hope to see you again next time on Ampere Amplified. Thanks, Mahesh.